everyone. I'm Samantha Carlin, your host, and welcome to this week's episode of Samantha Politics, your source for global politics with a feminist lens. We also look at pressing international and domestic issues as well. Tonight's show is going to be about immigration. We're going to look at the history of immigration in the United States and try to understand why there's such a backlog of immigration cases within the U.S. system and what we can do to change it. We have two amazing guests waiting in the wings as usual, and I'm really excited to bring them on. Uh, if you are watching this show and you like it, you can also support us now on Patreon, and we'll put that link, patreon.com slash politics one and become a member and get more benefits with our show. But let's get down to business. So before we talk about the immense backlog in the U.S. immigration system today, I want to do a little bit of a history deep dive to figure out who have we excluded when and why. So in 1790, the Naturalization Act of 1790 allowed, I love this language, any free white person of good character who has been living in the United States for two years or longer to apply for citizenship. I am unclear why they said it was uh, of good character, uh, how, who and how exactly that was determined, but that was the first act that we put forward. In 1820, there were huge waves of Irish and German immigrants. This was between 1820 and 1863. For those of you of our Irish descendants, you may have remembered the uh, potato famine where a million people starved to death in Ireland and another million fled the country, including to the U.S. Also during that time, there were a lot of German immigrants that came as well. In 1849, America's first anti-immigrant party, the Know Nothing Party forms. I also think that's hilarious. Does that mean that they didn't know anything? Maybe that is why they named it the Know Nothing Party. Um, but the Know Nothing Party was formed as a backlash to all of these immigrants. In 1907, we limited Japanese immigration. Oh, excuse me, let me go back. And in 1883, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, why was there the Chinese Exclusion Act? Because there was the perception on the West Coast that the Chinese were taking jobs. Even though there was no proof to that at all, the Chinese Exclusion Act limited Chinese from coming to the country. That was in 1883. And then you have 1880 to 1920, you have Jews that were leaving Europe to escape anti-Semitism. Now, if you could throw up that slideshow, Zach, of my family. So I would love for you to meet my great grandma, uh, Molly, and my great grandfather, Sam. They were both from Poland. My great grandfather, Sam, came here at 15 years old because of anti-Semitism in Europe. He was sick of being called names and persecuted. He came over. Molly also came over from Poland. They met here. They had five children, including my grandma. And hooray, I am here today. The sad part of the story, though, is that Sam's father and some of his other relatives came over at one point to the U.S. or they didn't get into the U.S. and they ended up back in Poland. What happened to them? Every single one of my relatives that remained in Eastern Europe was murdered in the Holocaust. We actually don't even really know where or how they died, but they were murdered at some point in the Holocaust and essentially vanished. So that's what happened when Jews were not permitted to come to this country, uh, they were killed. And so that's something that's really important to know and to think about is that many people come to this country fleeing violence, and when they have to go back, they might not make it out alive again. So if we look at 1910, an estimated, this is astonishing, three quarters of New York City's population was made of immigrants and first-generation Americans. If you ever go to the Lower East Side, the Tenement Museum is a fascinating look at immigration and at immigrants in the Lower East Side, where most of the U.S.'s fashion used to be made, about 70% of U.S. Uh, clothing was made in the um, down on the Lower East Side back at the turn of the century. In 1924, the Immigration Act of 1924, we limited immigrants allowed into the United States yearly in nationality quotas. Now, under this quota system, we issued immigration visas to 2% of the total number of people of each nationality in the U.S. at the 1890 census. 
really confusing, but essentially it was saying, okay, we want people that we already have, which I don't really get. Uh, so Northern and Western European countries were the favorite. Now, going back to Nazi Germany, there was a conference basically uh, called the Evian Conference as Nazi Germany was putting all the restrictions. There was Kristallnacht, uh, there, either the Jews were starting to wear stars and people were realizing the situation is getting really bad for Jews in Europe. So what happened? There was a conference called the Evian Conference that brought together 32 countries and said, who will take the Jews? So really interesting fact here. There was only one country that stepped up to take any Jews. Not a country you might expect. It was not the United States. It was the Dominican Republic. And the reason that they wanted Jews was because Jews were white and they were hoping they were hoping that as Jews came in and married in that it would whiten the color of the, the Dominicans. Kind of a sick reason. At least they took some Jews. We even rejected 20,000 Jewish children that the Senate, um, the Senate rejected them, that, that there were, there were uh, people that were willing to take these Jewish children into their homes. And the Senate said, no, thanks. Most of those children probably died in the Holocaust in a grotesque way in the gas chambers. So then let's go into the Cold War. During the Cold War, the U.S. was actually taking a lot of uh, people fleeing Soviet countries because it was part of our foreign policy status. It looked good to take people fleeing the Soviet Union. Come to us. We're the beacons of democracy. Come into our open arms. Like, get away from the communists. So it was actually part of our foreign policy. We took a lot of Jews from the Soviet Union. We also took a lot of Hungarians during that time. Then you see Fidel Castro in Cuba. So there was an operation called Peter Pan, which was also anti-communist, where about 14,000 unaccompanied children fled Fidel Castro's Cuba for the United States. Now, let's go to today. Trump, you might remember at the beginning of his administration, banned a certain number of Arab countries from uh, coming into the country, saying that they were sources of terrorism. There also has been severe violence that's been plaguing Central America since the 1980s when the U.S. supported dictatorial regimes, also because they were anti-communist. Zach, you can do that next slideshow. <clears throat> and this was a time where the government was essentially attacking their own people and disappearing and murdering all of these people because they were anti-governments that we in the U.S. supported. Makes a lot of sense. Over the years, and our guests will explicate this more, this has turned into gang violence, domestic violence, civil war, war, and also just no opportunity, leaving thousands and thousands and thousands of people trying to come to the U.S. to flee violence or to have a better life. I think it's important to note, too, that it's not just Central American um, immigrants that are looking to get into this country. There's also Daniela, who's going to be on the show in a bit. And I went to the Fletcher School and we had lots of people who we went to graduate school with who are fabulous, brilliant, intelligent, multiply educated people. And they could not get visas to stay in the U.S. And they all went back to their home countries because it was so hard to get work here. So not all of them, but a certain percentage of them could not get work here, even if they said that the visa would be sponsored by their company, it still doesn't mean you can definitely get into the country. So that's important to note. So what happened also under the Trump administration, there was anti-immigrant sentiment of basically, we don't want you, don't come in. Uh, the other thing that happened was something called the Remain in Mexico policy. And that's where asylum seekers, so if you're seeking asylum, you're looking to flee violence, asylum seekers were uh, said, instead of waiting in the U.S. for your asylum case to process, you have to go back to Mexico. And in Mexico, usually they were in an extremely dangerous situation, and actually they are. So that policy was reversed by the Biden administration, but then it was reinstated by a lower court. So that policy is now back in effect, the Remain in Mexico policy, which has put people back into the danger that they were trying to flee from. The other thing that happened that was notorious under the Trump administration was the separation of children from their families. You might remember those horrible pictures of children literally being ripped out of their parents' arms and being put in detention centers as young and eight as 18 months old. And there nobody kept track of whose parents were the parents to which child. So when the Biden task force started to try to reunite them, their, the records were barely there. So that's another thing the Biden administration has done is establish this task force to reunite families. 
However, Zach, if you could put that graph up. We have the largest number of pending cases in U.S. history in the immigration courts, around 1.6 million. And you can see how it's been going up over time. And even worse, the length of time for those with open immigration cases in order to try to get a decision determining their legal status is now almost five years five years of waiting to find out what's going on it is actually the slowest system ever okay so i want to go and just dive into our guest uh our first guest is daniela Bergi palomino who i was lucky to have as a colleague and friend at the fletcher school of law and diplomacy at tufts she's the co-director of the latin america working group since 2019. Um, she's been working on transnational advocacy and campaigns related to human rights in Mexico and Central America, migrant rights and border issues. She was the first coordinator of the Funders Alliance, the Central America and Mexico Migration Alliance. She was a Fulbright and a program associated at Oxfam. She's done research around organizational strategy, uh, organizational advocacy strategies on issues such as transitional justice, migrant rights, gender and internal displacement. All right, so Daniela, I'm going to bring you in. Hi, Daniela, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Samantha, thank you for having me. Uh, it's lovely to see you. So I, I want to actually start by asking you where you're from. I, just, I talked a little about the history of my family and how they came here. Can you tell everyone about you? Yeah, sure. So I am uh, also have a direct immigration experience. I'm the proud daughter of immigrants, uh, immigrant parents from Peru and Switzerland. And I grew up in New York City. Uh, so very much the heart of, you know, a lot of the history that you were talking about, a lot of the immigrant history. Um, so originally from New York, born and raised there, but very much grew up um, tri-culturally. How cool. Super, super interesting. Peru and Switzerland. I love that combination. Um, so we are one year into the Biden administration, or excuse me, has it been a year? Is it, I'm losing it. Yes, it's been yep. one year, right? Yeah, just been uh, a year. Thank, thank goodness uh, it's not been more than that. Uh, it's been, <laughs> I'm terrified of the next elections. So what are some of the most important policy changes that you have seen happen uh, under the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis immigration? Yeah, so I think, you know, by and large, uh, the Bi President Biden during the campaign really campaigned on a policy of being different from Trump on immigration, on wanting to recognize the importance of immigrants um, and their contributions to the U.S. Um, and he made a number of promises during his campaign that he would restore access to asylum at the border, that he would support a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented, including the Dreamers um, and other temporary protected status beneficiaries. Um, you know, that he'd reunify families, that you were just talking about the many families that were separated under the Trump administration. And that overall, he'd have sort of a, um, a less harsh enforcement approach to immigrants living in our communities in the U.S. And I think going into, you know, where we're at now is that some of those actions have happened, but certainly not all. And I think mm -hmm. from uh, an immigrant rights perspective, we, we do think that there's some areas where he's kind of fallen short. And really, at this point, we would have expected much more progress. So can you outline, Daniela, what exactly are the, the areas that you feel like, you know, he's fallen short and where you'd like to see action happen? Yeah, so I think some of the, the biggest challenge currently right now and where we've seen less progress and a continuation of the Trump uh, legacy of, of cruelty and inhumanity is really at the border, at the U.S.-Mexico border. And so we have a situation at the border right now where, you know, more than a year into the Biden administration, we're seeing the continuation of two Trump-era policies. One of them, you mentioned the Remain in Mexico MPP policy, which, you know, to President Biden's credit, on the second day that he was in office, he did try to, he did end. Um, he set in place a process to process all those people that had been impacted by uh, that policy. And so from February through June of last year, we saw up to 13,000 asylum seekers that had been impacted by the Remain in Mexico policy, MPP, forced to wait in Mexico, actually coming in and being able to take on their asylum cases from within the safety of the United States and within the safety of their family members. 
Um, but unfortunately, there was a court order that is now forcing the Biden administration to re-implement this policy. Um, and so while, you know, they have this court order, um, the Biden administration has sort of gone above and beyond what the court ordered them to do, which was sort of just re-implement the policy in good faith. Um, they've actually expanded who that policy applies to. So under the Trump administration, it was really just for Spanish-speaking asylum seekers. Now that policy can apply to anyone coming, arriving at our border from the Western Hemisphere. Wait, I want, um, I want to stop you for one second so I'm, so I'm just understanding what you're mm -hmm. saying. So you're saying that the Biden administration reversed the policy and then it was re-implemented by another court and now it's been expanded, the definition's been expanded by who? Is it the administration or is it... Yeah, it's the administration. So basically when the administration was forced to re-implement this policy, you know, it didn't ha have to go that far in re-implementing it and it could have kept appealing that order. Mm. Um, but instead what we saw was that very quickly it started negotiating with the Mexican government to see how it would re-implement this policy, going back on its initial promise and really expanding who the policy would apply to, even more so than under the Trump administration. Mm. So, so they expanded it to include, to include who now? Or to anyone, the policy applies now to anyone from the Western Hemisphere of the Caribbean. Previously under the Trump administration, it just applied to Spanish-speaking asylum seekers. So we're talking that really anyone, anyone from Latin America and the Caribbean could be forced to return to wait in Mexico for their asylum proceedings. Um, and, you know, it started in December. It started to be re-implemented in December. Um, since then, there's been about 400 asylum seekers returned, which might seem like a small number, um, but it's just operating along three points along the border so far. Um, we expect that to be expanded in the coming months. And there's no sign that the administration is, you know, trying to appeal the court order or maybe, you know, taking other measures to slow down the processing of that policy unnecessarily. And then at the same time, we have this policy. We still have a Title 42 policy that has never been lifted since March 2020 under the Trump administration. And this policy is basically another way to shut the border to asylum seekers, to people arriving at our border. Um, and under this policy, basically anyone who tries to um, cross the border is summarily expelled, sometimes in a matter of minutes, back mm -hmm. to Mexican territory or very quickly put on flights back to their home country without any sort of screening uh, for protection. And there's, there's been over a million people expelled in this way since March 2020, about half of those under the Biden administration. Um, it's a completely unlawful policy that, you know, flies in the face of international law. And, you know, it, it has a pandemic justification. Can you explain, Daniela, how does it fly in the face of international law? Can you explain to our viewers? Yeah, so it, I mean, there's no screening. Um, you know, it gives, it gives people no chance to make their claim for asylum whatsoever. Um, so, like I said, people are just kind of um, apprehended immediately and then summarily expelled or returned back to Mexican territory. And the Remain in Mexico policy, you know, even though we have a lot of problems with that policy as well, you know, people eventually get a court date, even if they're waiting in Mexico, they eventually get a court date. But under the Title 42 policy, um, that doesn't happen. And so people are just in very few cases, unless you're an accompanied child, um, that which is exempt from both of these policies, there are very few cases of people actually getting processed into um, the United States from the border right now because of both of these policies. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the Title 42 policy, the justification has been the pandemic, but even when it was implemented in March 2020, um, you know, there was truck drivers crossing the border. There were students crossing the border. Um, and so it was a very much a singling out of migrants arriving at our border um, and, and a way to shut the door to them. Um, and unfortunately, the Biden administration has continued that. They're actually ramping up flights. There's been, um, you know, over 15,000 Haitians have been returned to Haiti under this policy just in September. Um, there's now flights to Brazil, to Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Um, and just actually last week, we had the case of Venezuelans that were actually flown from the border to Colombia, a country hmm. they're not even from. Um, so we're just not only seeing a continuation, 
of, like I said, these Trump era policies, but sort of like a ramping up as opposed to starting to find alternatives. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that was my second question, because it seems like the reason is they're trying to deal with the backlog and it's just to ship people back uh, without even processing asylum claims because they feel like they can't process them. So what, what are the alternatives? So we think actually, you know, the remain in Mexico uh, when President Biden tried to um, end that policy and start processing people, right? We think that actually was a really good model for what could be happening right now, even during a pandemic. So that was a perfect example of how through the collaboration with, you know, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, NGOs along the border, and the U.S. government, there was a process set up uh, to process people and make sure they got to the border, were tested for COVID, um, and then were let in, right? And and were allowed to carry out their asylum claim from within the United States. So it, it is possible, and the collaboration with organizations on the ground is, is a key part of that. Um, we're not saying, you know, that everyone um, is going to have an asylum claim that's going to be approved. What we're saying is that there has to be a process at the border by which people can make their claim heard. Um, and right now what we're doing is just turning people away. Yeah, which is, you know, again, ironic considering we are a country where, you know, as I said earlier in, in my spiel, like, you know, my my relatives were fleeing violence, right? And if they weren't, if they weren't admitted in the 1920s, like, I would never be here. I would not have been born. Uh, and I don't think people really understand that or people didn't who didn't leave Ireland for the potato famine. If they didn't get into America, guess what? They might have starved to death also. So I think there's just lack of understanding of what what exactly people are facing. Um, so can you explain, like, what are some of the reasons that people from Central America are fleeing? Yeah, so um, I spend a lot of my time on, on, on Central America. You know, the reality is that we're seeing people from across the hemisphere arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's not just Central America, Venezuelans, right. Cubans, Haitians, but on Central America, you know, we have seen for a long time um, uh, a lot of factors that have been driving forced migration, you know, since 2014, 2015, when it picked up with unaccompanied child migrant crisis. And, you know, it still is very much gang violence, um, at high levels of extortion uh, that gangs utilize to target families and individuals. Um, we are still seeing, um, you know, corruption from, from the governments themselves. I would say in all three countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, where people have just basically lost hope in the ability of their government to protect them and to act as a functioning government. Um, the former president of Honduras, um, and I say former because there was, there's just been the election of a new uh, Honduras' first female president, but the former president of Honduras actually had ties to narco-trafficking. Um, and so this is kind of the levels of, of corruption that we're seeing to the highest levels in these governments. You know, there's poverty, climate change increasingly is becoming a factor. The entire region actually suffered the effects of two back-to-back -back hurricanes in November 2020. Um, and the pandemic has caused, you know, huge impacts to the economy um, and increasing unemployment. So it's a range of factors. It's, you know, it's not just gang violence. It's also, like I said, corruption and repression by these governments. And it is a situation where all these factors kind of combine and people really just have lost hope for the future. Um, but many times, and I forgot to mention, of course, sexual and gender-based violence, yeah. it's a targeted kind of violence where people are fleeing from. What would you say to those people who say that those people are entering illegally, they should be shipped back or that they don't deserve to be here? What would you say to those people? You know, the reality is that people are actually trying to approach a border point of entry, um, many cases, and like request asylum. Um, and, um, you know, others then make their claim once they get into the United States. And, you know, these are people, as I said, who are fleeing cases of violence mixed in with other factors who are really just searching for a better life or protection, really a safe place or to be reunified with their families in the United States. Um, and the, you know, the unaccompanied migrant children that have entered the United States are thriving members of, of our society. So, you know, I would say to those people that, um, you know, many times people are trying to approach the border and make these claims in the, in the quote unquote right way. Um, but there is no right way right now at the border. I mean, there's this humanitarian chaos. That's what's happening. 
And, you know, these are ultimately members, uh, people that grow to be members, strong members of our community that contribute to our economy and that are very much, you know, have contributed to the fabric of this country for, for many years. So um, uh, th those are some of the things that, that I would say. And I think, you know, there can be another, there are alternatives to welcome people at the border and to really process them so that they can eventually contribute um, to our societies. Um, I think the last thing, too, is that, you know, we're talking about people that have traversed countries to arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, even even now I was looking, there's um, hundreds of Haitians at the Mexico-Guatemala border um, who have already set up their own businesses there because they've been waiting there, um, are either waiting to process their case in Mexico or eventually making their way to the United States. So we're talking about incredibly courageous people who are also, you know, very hardworking, entrepreneurial and ready to make contributions to the United States. Yeah. Thank you so much, Danielle. Um, last question for you. You know, if the average American citizen cares about this, what can they do in order to help change uh, Title 42? Title 42 is correct. That's what it's called, right? Um, change Title 42 or to take action on this. What can they do? Yeah, so there's a number of ways you can get involved. First, I would say if you belong to a church, look, start within your own community. So wherever it is that you are in the United States, um, whether you belong to a church, you're very active in your school or a neighborhood association, and you have had a positive experience with an immigrant member of your community, find ways to within your associations or clubs that you belong to, to maybe you know write letters to local government officials and talk about how you can be a welcoming community just within your own association. Um, secondly, I would say that if you know, you're shocked by anything what I'm saying in terms of what's actually happening at the border right now, um, to make that known. Um, if you have already had the privilege of going to the border um, and volunteering with organizations, um, you know, write about this, write op-eds about this. Um, you might have the opportunity to go back to the border and support a border organization. There are many that are in dire need of help. You can donate them or even maybe volunteer or volunteer virtually. And lastly, you know, we have had um, some members of Congress speak out about uh, the situation at the border, but it's certainly not enough. Um, and it's been sort of at peaks at different moments, like when we had the situation of the Haitians in Del Rio, Texas, um, last September. Um, and so we do need a lot of um, support um, to the extent that you're outraged by this. Your member of Congress should also be outraged by it and be outraged by the fact that we're not living up to our values of being a welcoming country. Also check out um, my organization tomorrow. We're actually going to have an action that you can get involved in on our website. There is, there is a congressional letter um, that is still opening and um, that some members of Congress are leading, actually writing to the CDC, questioning them on their rationale behind the use of the Title 42 policy and expressing concern about it. So if you want to get involved in that, check our website, check out our website tomorrow and you might be able to get your member of Congress to sign on to that letter. Thank you, Danielle. And what is the website for people? Log, L-A-W-G dot org lawg.org so latinamericaworkinggroup.org so you can uh, you can get in on that letter and pressure your congressperson to speak out against what's happening awesome thank you so much daniela i want to just thank you so much for coming on the show and also for the incredibly important work you're doing to try to um have people's human rights essentially be respected uh, it's really really important work so i want to thank you for doing that and for coming on samantha politics thanks so much samantha Good night. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So you hear that? Um, get to lawg.org and you can get in on that letter to Congress to have them speak out against this policy that I frankly didn't really know even was still happening uh, from the Trump administration. So it's really important to know that people are not having their asylum claims processed. So I wanna bring on our next guest. Uh, Joshua Toll is the pro bono partner at King & Spalding, which is a terrific international law firm and a resident of the DC office. He leads the pro bono program across all King & Spalding offices firm-wide, which again, we're talking international. This is not a small law firm. Um, he does amazing work overseeing all these lawyers that are going out there and trying to do good in the world and help people that don't have representation. I was really impressed when I first met him. 
before 2013, he was chair of the pro bono committee in the DC office. And under his leadership, King and Spalding has received multiple pro bono awards and accolades, including recognition from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association, and the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. In addition to leading the firm's pro bono program, Josh does his pro bono work focusing on death penalty and juvenile justice, impact litigation, and civil matters in DC. Prior to joining King and Spalding, he was a trial attorney with the Office of the Public Defender of Maryland, where he took more than 75 cases to trial in various Maryland state courts. He successfully litigated constitutional and state criminal law issues and developed expertise in negotiating favorable outcomes for clients with complex cases. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Cornell and a JD from Harvard. Welcome to the show, Josh. Oh, I think you're still muted, Josh. I'm trying to unmute you. There we go. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, let me just start by saying that I'm approaching this from, as you said, from the perspective of a pro bono immigration lawyer. And I want to talk about my experience in the court system. I'm going to reference some specific experiences I've had, but of course, I can't mention specific client names. So I'll just be vague about certain details or maybe change little things to protect their identities. And of course, the views I express here tonight are my own. So just wanted to put out those caveats, but thank you for having me. Absolutely, Josh. So first question for you, I'm going to start with the same as Daniela. What's your ethnic history identity? Where are your parents and grandparents from? Yeah, great question. Um, on my mom's side, my family is Italian. In fact, my grandmother was born in Italy and came here uh, when she was two years old and they settled in New Jersey, the Penns Grove uh, neighborhood, which is also where uh, celebrity um, Bruce Willis is from. Um, and then, yeah, on my dad's side, it was a mix of um, English, Irish, German and French. So a bunch of European countries represented, but certainly immigration is a very personal issue for me as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh. So what is what is going on? Why is there such a huge backlog in the system? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it's a combination of factors. Certainly the surge of people that are fleeing violence um, in Central America has played into it. Um, just more people entering the system, but certainly COVID. COVID has been a big factor as well because the court systems had to postpone a lot of cases due to suspending in-person hearings. I think some of the uh, various immigration courts have been slower than others to adopt WebEx technology. Um, and so they're, they're rolling all of that out and they're trying to make up for lost time. But I think it's a lot of factors have, have really led to an unprecedented backlog, as you mentioned. And I just want to take a moment to talk kind of about the real consequences of that. You mentioned that that client immigrants have to wait, you know, five or six years for their hearing. Mm -hmm. And we're actually seeing that play out in practice. We have clients who are claiming asylum, seeking asylum. And yeah, they're receiving court dates in 2025. And that's incredibly difficult because number one, it makes it more difficult for them to prove their cases three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, memories have faded, documents are no longer available, passed away, a lot of things can happen. And then secondly, many um, immigrants will have put down roots in that time. They may have had children uh, who are then US citizens by virtue of being born here. Some of them may marry US citizens and be able to adjust status that way, but others mm -hmm. won't have that option. But they're gonna have a life here. They're gonna start a life here and then to have to go to court in five years to present their claim, which may not be successful. Um, I think it raises a lot of really, really basic fairness issues. Thank you so much. Can you share a story of one of the clients you've represented and what the circumstances were of their case? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it might be helpful if I just touch on a few um, because we do have a broad based asylum and immigration practice at King and Spalding. Um, you know, our work is nonpartisan, nonpolitical. Our goal is to represent people, immigrants who can't afford to hire a lawyer. This is our way of giving back. So we're really trying to help as many people as we can. And it's really one of the big factors, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, is the fact that there's no right to representation in immigration court. Um, so if you can't afford to hire a lawyer and you're not able to find an organization like Catholic Charities, for example, that may be able to represent you pro bono, and there are some great ones out there, 
you are going to have to represent yourself. And that's really unfair because the immigration system, as you know, is quite technical. Um, and so we're trying to help as many people as we can. There's a lot of great pro bono lawyers out there at other large law firms, right. large small and medium large firms, uh, law firms as well that are doing the same thing. But we've done everything from asylum cases to representing unaccompanied minors who come into this country. We do DACA work. We help DACA recipients with DACA renewals. Um, we help victims of. Can you just explain what DACA is in case anyone doesn't yeah, know? Yeah, sorry. That's um, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. So these are people who came here as children um, to the United States with their parents uh, in an undocumented status, but they've now lived here continuously for quite a long time. They're now adults, and this is really the only country in most cases they've ever known. And so the Obama administration put out this program, which allows um, with certain conditions, you have to have, you have to ha not have a serious criminal record. You have to have a job uh, or be in the military or be pursuing your education. So there are a number of, of factors that you have to satisfy to get DACA status. And it's not an actual citizenship status, but it does allow you to stay here, but you have to renew your DACA status every two years, which is quite burdensome. Um, so we do that work and then we represent victims of trafficking, victims of domestic violence. And we also help people who have been here uh, legally apply for green cards. But yeah, I just want to touch on a few stories. Sure. Um, we have a DACA recipient who, despite uh, you know doing his best to maintain employment, had to experience um, extraordinary medical expenses for his elder elderly mother who was undocumented because uh, the Obama administration also rolled out the DAPA program, which was for parents, but that was struck mm -hmm. down by court. So the, the parents of the DACA recipients often are undocumented. This particular DACA recipient um, was in a position where he could not afford the filing fee. It's a $500 filing fee every two years, which is non-waivable. Uh, Many of the immigration um, different forms you can file for a fee waiver, but you cannot do that for DACA uh, renewals. And so we had to help him get charitable assistance. Otherwise he would have lost his DACA status and having to do that mm. every year is $500 is a very significant barrier for people who have DACA. Absolutely. Yeah. I also want to talk about um, a young woman we represented who did come into this country when she was 15. Uh, she was fleeing um, sexual assault by a gang member in a Central American country. Um, she had uh, a father who had abandoned her and a mother who had a chronic uh, illness and was not really able to care for her. So in addition to you know fleeing sexual assault and gang violence, she really did not have a stable situation um, in her home country. And her story was was so compelling. And yet, despite that, this government put her into removal proceedings and spent years actively trying to remove her from this country. Wow. And what was the, what was the, what was the government's case in that situation that her, why was, why was her circumstances not good enough? Like, yeah, I mean, it was really because she entered this country without inspection. And, and certainly there's people that will kind of debate both sides of that. But she snuck into this country because she was fleeing gang violence and was desperate um, for a better life. And she did have a relative here. Um, and we were able to demonstrate that she does meet a legal program called Special Immigrant Juvenile Status, which is for uh, neglected minors, neglected children. Um, and so we were able to get her that status, which was great. And then we were able to get her immigration case dismissed, which is wonderful. And currently her green card application is pending and we do expect that to be approved. So it's a great success story, but we had to battle it out for years in immigration court. And had she not had a lawyer, again, had she not had representation um, to be able to dot all the right I's and cross all the right T's, um, you know, her fate could have been much different. Uh, yeah, I, Josh, I think that's, first of all, amazing. Uh, so thank you for your work there. But also to think about, too, you know, we're also assuming that people speak English and that right. they're able to, I can barely get through anything legal in English. And that English is my native language because the legalese, my sister sent me a case she worked on and I was like, my head was spinning. Um, Danielle right. might know I did not do well in my law classes at Fletcher. I did really well in my diplomacy classes, but the law classes were like, yikes. So, you know, that assumption, too, that people are going to be able to navigate that on their own is just unbelievable. Absolutely. Completely agree.
Josh, so why do we have, you know, you were a public defender. We have this system of federal defenders and of public defenders at the state level. Why do we not have defenders um, for immigration and for asylum seekers? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really because immigration is civil, um, even though the consequences of deportation, as you pointed out, you may be sent back to a country where your life is very much at risk. So really, the stakes couldn't be higher. But we've had a policy in this country, you know, for a long time. Um, of course, you've heard of um, the Gideon case, right, the counsel in criminal matters. Those are obviously deemed to be a kind of a higher level of interest because your liberty is at stake. And unfortunately, we haven't extended the right to counsel to indigent people in civil matters. And that can not only be deportation, but it can be eviction from your home. It can be loss of custody of your children. Um, again, these are life-changing events that are major events for anybody. And I think in part, it's a resource issue. Uh, we haven't wanted to, to devote the resources, but I personally think it's vitally important. And we see this in immigration court. If you look at asylum cases as an example, the success rate for people represented versus people who are unrepresented is a night and day difference in the statistics. Um, having a, an attorney is so important to the success of your claim. You can have a very strong asylum claim, but without an attorney, you're not really going to know how to present it. And, and that's a huge problem. Yeah. Can we talk too about this? I, I mean, these, these photos of like three-year-olds in court by themselves with right. are so ridiculous. I, I mean, I mean, Indeed. how do we expect, like, even if we had some kind of proceeding where we said, okay, we're going to give every unaccompanied minor or every, every juvenile access to a lawyer, because I mean, there's a th three-year-old can't even tie his shoes. Right. Like, right. How, do you, how do you defend yourself in asylum proceedings? Right. I completely agree. If you wanted to sort of pick a place to begin, maybe you want to say as a policymaker, like, well, we can't give everyone a lawyer instantaneously. Deciding to give indigent children an attorney, I think, would be a great first step um, because they are completely vulnerable and they need the assistance. And I think as a society, we need to figure out a way. Uh, to do that. Now, not, that could come at the state level. There are some states, I know, like in Atlanta, the Atlanta public defender has begun representing in certain immigration cases um, that could come at the federal level. Uh, there's obviously different ways to do it. But I think we need to have those conversations and figure out a way to get this done, because, again, this is basic fairness. Josh, I just want to break for a second and go to Zach. Zach, can you cue up that video, uh, the documentary? So this is a clip from a documentary, which is about what we're talking about, undocumented, uh, or about children represent representing themselves in immigration court. Can you throw up that video, please? nervous this morning see do you understand what these proceedings here in court are all about you know what a lawyer is no do you have a lawyer Sophia, good morning. Are you a little nervous this morning? See? See? You know what a lawyer is? No. No? Do you have a lawyer?
gosh, anything come to mind when you watch that video? Yeah, I think it's accurate. I think that those exact scenes have played themselves out in this country many, many, many times. And as you pointed out, it's also a, a language barrier. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of these children have not yet been able to learn English. Um, and so they're having to try to get an interpreter to explain to them what the judge is asking them. And then, you know, they may be able to answer basic questions like, do you have a lawyer? But at, at some point they're going to what the clip didn't show is that you have to present your defenses to removal in yeah. immigration court. And there's obviously no way they're going to really know what those are. Uh, they may, it's in some cases, maybe be able to talk about some of the dangers they escape. But again, without an attorney to present it in the right way, it's going to be extremely difficult. Thanks, Josh. So another issue that we spoke about is this issue of the lack of independence of immigration judges. Can you speak a little bit about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, as you pointed out, you know, we have a state and federal court system and typically, you know, the federal court system funnels up to the U.S. Supreme Court. All of those federal judges are, are independent in the sense that they have lifetime appointments um, and they have that judicial independence. However, immigration judges don't have the same independence. They're administrative law judges. They're technically employed by the Department of Justice, uh, which means that they don't have the same level of independence. And independent, judicial independence is so, uh, it's so important because obviously sometimes judges have to make um, unpopular decisions, controversial decisions, if that's what the law dictates. And um, they need to be able to resist any type of influence from the other branches. And so a lot of people have pointed out that, you know, we really should create an independent body of immigration judges and give them more security and independence, which will, we think, lead to fair outcomes. Um, and those proposals have definitely been out there for a while. It's been a discussion, but it's just not something we've made any progress on. Yeah, so I think it's important to point out with, um, you know, with, with regards to lack of, of independence that some, sometimes, you know, under certain administrations, they're given quotas, like you can right. only approve this many asylum cases and you're expected to deny it. So, you know, they have somebody in front of them. They're like, well, quotas up. Sorry. Get out. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the quotas more recently have been more about how you have to handle this many cases per day or per week or per month in terms of the processing times. But of course, that is very difficult because some cases are more complex than others. And, you know, basic principles of due process dictate that you have to be entitled to fully present your case, however long that takes. Some people may have one witness, some people may have 10 witnesses, but whatever you have, you have to be able to present it. And a judge under a strict time quota is not going to be able to thoughtfully adjudicate your case. And again, it's just, that's simply not fair. Yeah, it's absolutely not. Another thing that we spoke about was the discretion of immigration authorities to deport or not deport. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's come up, we talked about a little bit um, earlier in the show with regard to ICE enforcement priorities. Um, so I think those have changed um, somewhat um, recently um, where people who pose a national security risk or have serious felony convictions have become enforcement priorities over just someone who's, yes, undocumented, but has been living here for a long time and, and has not broken the law. For example, the parent of a DACA recipient um, has maybe lived here for decades and has not broken the law. Uh, that person would no longer be an enforcement priority in terms of being arrested by ICE. But there's also discretion in a different way, which is that the, uh, as the clip mentioned, the government always has a lawyer, which is a lawyer from the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, they have discretion to close cases or to dismiss cases um, based on the interest of justice. And a lot of advocates, um, you know, really have pointed out that they should be using their discretion a lot more than they do. Wait, wait, sorry, I'm going to stop you, Josh. I'm just trying to understand. They're, they they can close them in the interest of justice to who? What What is the, I don't know, who determines justice there? Right, so they, as the Department of Homeland Security, they, they initiate the case. They start the case in immigration court by issuing a charging document called a notice to appear. And okay. ultimately the case will be decided by a judge if it goes that far. Um, but they also, because they can bring cases, they can also dismiss cases. And there are situations where, um, let, let's say, you know, for example, you have one year to claim asylum. Let's say you missed your deadline for various reasons. You were ill, you didn't have access to resources. You may have a great case, but there may be some technical defects. 
um, such that a judge may decide, you know what, I'm sorry, I can't give you asylum. I'm going to have to order your removal. That's a case where the Department of Homeland Security could decide to just dismiss the case. Um, and that's called prosecutorial discretion because they're prosecuting the case. Um, and we really want to encourage them to do that because. Sorry, yes, just saying, so you're dismissing the prosecution of this individual for deportation. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Okay. I just wanted to be clear. Right. And, you know, we have an adversarial system that's true, but the government should be trying to achieve justice. And there may be people who have excellent reasons and really deserve to stay here, despite not technically meeting the asylum claims whereby the government could exercise discretion to allow them to stay. Um, and that also would do a lot to address the backlog because some of those cases could be resolved short of actually going to trial uh, and that would work on the back uh, uh so if we dismissed a bunch of these kinds of of these cases then it would get rid of some of the cases that are kind of clogging up the immigration system that are kind of not really necessary because they haven't committed a crime um and I'm sure, you know are probably working you know there was also something and i we didn't talk about this before but i wonder that the, you know the us has always said that they'll give you citizenship if you fight in the military. I mean, that's been, you know, ages and ages and ages. And yet I've heard of a lot of examples where people have served in the military and they still can't get their citizenship. Have you had any experiences with that at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have DACA clients um, who are, have served in the military um, and they're, they're not getting citizenship. There's no pathway for them currently. And, you know, I mean, I think, the Biden administration has tried to put together a framework and sent it to Congress, which really, um, I think, politically has not, you know, the, the Senate's just not going to go through. But I mean, I think there's some really good reasons to if you wanted to start with one group, the DACA recipients themselves, offering mm -hmm. them a pathway to full citizenship, I think makes a lot of sense. And right now that does not exist. So essentially, the DACA recipients, if I'm getting this correct, they have to pay a refiling fee every, was it two, two years, years or mm -hmm. two years of $500 to stay DACA, but there's no pathway to actually become a citizen. You're just in this kind of limbo. Is that, is that exactly. right? That's exactly right. Now you do get a work um, permit. You get a work permit, which is important, but you don't have all of the other you know rights that you would have as a citizen. Yeah. You know what, just, you know, I always find this so intriguing and stupid, you know, the, this idea that a lot of people here that are here illegally, they want to work. They, they want they are to work. They are working. You know, and they are working. And so the only reason they're working, quote unquote, under the table is because they don't have a work permit. That's right. And if they had a work permit, they would be happy to pay taxes to America because it would enable them access to jobs. Absolutely. I don't understand. It's like I, I was when I was living in Spain, I was looking at, you know, getting a job in Spain. And I was like, oh, I don't have a visa to work here. Just kidding. I can't work. Right. Had I had a visa or a work permit, I could have worked there and given money to the Spanish economy vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, a portion of my income. But because I'm Absolutely. not Spanish, I can't work. You know, right. it's similarly there or in the U.S. Absolutely. Very similar. Yeah. So are there any other stories of people you represented that you kind of want to want to reflect on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we represent victims of trafficking. And oftentimes they've been through really horrific events, um, could be sexual trafficking, could be forced labor trafficking. And, um, you know, we had a case fairly recently of our client having been trafficked um, by a distant relative who oh. offered her the chance to seek out educational opportunities in the United States in return for doing some domestic work as a nanny. But when the client got to the United States, there was no opportunities for education and rather basically treated as an indentured servant, as a slave inside the household, not allowed to leave, not allowed, had to surrender her passport. And, you know, this, this person had to live in these awful conditions for multiple years before finally being able to escape. And like many uh, trafficking victims, it took her a long time to come to terms with what had happened. At, at first, she just wanted to get as far away from that situation as possible. Uh, and she went to the other coast in our country. But over time, with the help of therapy, she was able to talk about what had happened and start to come to terms with the trauma she had been through. 
Um, and we have a program for uh, trafficking victims called the T-Visa program, which is based on law enforcement cooperation. We want to encourage victims of trafficking to come forward so that we can prosecute to traffickers and end these awful practices. But our client, you know, it wasn't it's not unusual for her to have taken as long as she did. It takes a long time. But the government found that she, essentially that she had waited too long, um, that she was now mm -hmm. no longer here on account of her trafficking. Yeah, it's true that she had gotten married and had a couple of children, but wow. she's still very much dealing with the impact of her trafficking of and afraid to go back to her home country because that's where the traffickers live. Uh, and so for this government to say that, no, we're not going to give you this status, we're not going to issue you a T visa because you waited too long, was a very technical reading of the law that in our view kind of was flies in the face of the actual trauma that trafficking victims have to endure. Um, and so again, more humanity needs to be brought to these cases. Yeah, I think it's important just for our viewers to kind of know that for a long time, and in a lot of countries, it's still like this, trafficking isn't even, um, it's not even recognized, it's seen as prostitution. And for a long time, that was you know, it's it, that and when, when Josh is talking about having law enforcement to get the traffickers for a long time, people were scared to come forward because if they had been in sexual slavery, they could be arrested for prostitution. So a big right. shift in the legal system of many places was trying to appreciate that these women were, were not only women, but these people were coerced into sexual activities um, on behalf of a, you know, a pimp or a trafficker. And so we started to train our law enforcement to look for um, signs of trafficking versus just assuming that they were prostitutes and putting them in jail, which also then means they have a criminal record. And if they try to get out of uh, you know, out of trafficking situation, but they have prostitution on their record, then they have a really hard time getting a job. So it's whole That's cyclical right cyclical thing. So that's what we're talking about in terms of in terms of trafficking. And also trafficking can take the form of sex trafficking or it can take the form of labor trafficking. Mm -hmm. But uh, what Josh is talking about in terms of people being promised, you know, work in X country and we'll pay the, your, your fee to get to America or wherever it is. And then you get there, they take your passport and then they say that you owe them money for your that's plane right. ticket. Right. So Absolutely you have to right. work for them for, you know, however much time in order to or, you know, which could be a sex slave in order to repay that ticket. And then you're so emotionally <laughs> horribly beat up um, and face significant potential violence. Um, also, especially during sex trafficking, uh, you know, potentially being killed by some of these the, the people that they bring in. Right. So. Uh, not a not a great situation. Uh, the other thing we talked about, I'm just looking at my notes. Um, why do you think you know many of these migrants deserve to be in the country? Same kind of question for you that I asked to Daniela. Like, what do you say when people say, "Well, why are you representing these people?" Sure. I mean, a couple of a lot of things. Um, we are a nation built on immigration, a nation of immigrants. I, I shared my story of my grandmother coming here, who um, sadly she's passed away. Um, but she was such an important part of my life. And I think about her all the time. I miss her dearly. Uh, she had so much and did. She just she accomplished so much here and, and started an incredible family, uh, which ultimately ended up in me. Um, and but it's not just that, you know, we are a nation of immigrants, but so many of the immigrants that come here, as you point out, are hardworking individuals uh, that want to support their families, want to contribute to society. And they do that. They do that. Um, but it's not just that. I also want to touch upon the point of we are a beacon of freedom. And it sounds like a cliche, but that is what our country is. And for people who are fleeing persecution, you know, for example, we have a lot of clients who are LGBTQ clients. And that is why they had to leave their home countries. They were being persecuted because of being gay, as an example. Um, and, and we have sort of set the tone as a country, the beacon of freedom. Like you can, if you're facing persecution, you can come here. We have freedom of expression here. That's what our country is based on. And in order to really make that real, we can't just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. And that means letting in refugees and asylum seekers who are being persecuted based on their LGBTQ status, persecuted on their political opinion, persecuted based on their religion, all of the above, um, which are all of them are integral to our history of our country. That I think is what we are, who we are as a country. And we have to show that through our actions. Now you're on mute, I think. Thanks, Josh. I, I you know, I just want to go back to the Statue of Liberty, which is 
we created that, right? Right. We say, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Right. We're inviting I mean, people here. Of course. I mean, <laughs> we, we could have a whole other hour long conversation just based on all the things that famous immigrants have accomplished in this country. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, you know, I do want to let you go. But but to end on, too, is that people become extremely entrepreneurial. If you right. get to a country and they say, you know, I started my business when I was living in Spain and was like, oh, I can't work. I'm going to start a business that is virtual and I can see people in other places instead of contributing to the Spanish economy, essentially. But you become extremely entrepreneurial because you have to. That's right. Absolutely. And so many immigrants end up, you know, becoming entrepreneurs that employ thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans. Right. Are, and, and so, you know, it's not just that they're working and they have jobs. A lot of them become job creators. And like Daniela was saying, they've been through, I mean, if they can get through, uh, you know, the desert of, of Mexico or wherever it is for months trying to escape, I think they can figure out how to put up a LinkedIn ad. Right. right. They've like, done enormous <laughs> resilience in getting here. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Unbelievable resilience. Uh, Josh, anything else you want to reflect on before I let you go tonight? No, thank you. It's been a really great discussion. I look forward to talking with you further about these and other issues. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Joshua. And I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your insight and also in representing these people who ultimately, I mean, essentially without you, and the pro bono partners, like they don't have a chance. Thank so, you so much for, for those kind words and thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I just, I think it's really, really incredible the work that you're doing and I really thank admire you. it. Appreciate it. Oops, sorry, didn't mean to, didn't mean to cut you off there, but thank, thank you, you so much, Josh. All right, so that was Joshua Toll. He is the pro bono partner at King and Spalding. And before that, we had Daniela Bergi Palomino, who is the co director of the Latin America Working Group, talking about immigration reform and how can we change the system to be more humane. And also talking about have we left our roots as Americans, as immigrants, by shutting all of these people out? So if you liked this episode, I encourage you to share it with your friends. You also hit that subscribe button on YouTube to be notified the next time that we're live. But please feel free to share this. Get involved. If you care about immigration rights, write your letter of Congress. Uh, volunteer for one of these organizations. Also, Spanish translation. That's really important. If you do speak Spanish, there's a lot of organizations that need translators to translate from um, Spanish to English, especially on the border. So that's really important if you have Spanish skills to utilize those. There's so many things you can do to show that you care about these issues. And the last thing I kind of want to say is that, you know, there are a lot of places like under the Trump administration, you said, we're full, don't come in. There is a town in North Dakota that has a population of one person. She is the librarian. She is the mayor. She is the police chief. Okay. There are, are places in the U.S. that have essentially become literal ghost towns or deserts because nobody's there anymore. And we need people in these places in order to revitalize the economy. Uh, I, you know, there was a woman talking about how she's in South Dakota and she said, please send us immigrants. We need hardworking people here to revitalize the economy. Like we want people. So I, I think it's really ridiculous. And the U.S. is enormous. We are an enormous country and we have plenty of room and space for hardworking, resilient, entrepreneurial people. It's not like we're, you know, we don't have room for them. So I think that that excuse is just frankly ridiculous. Uh, so lastly, again, I want to thank our guests and I also want to thank King and Spalding, uh, an international law firm that also does really important pro bono work. As we heard, they have offices around the world and I want to thank their generosity in sponsoring this episode. I also want to thank Stream Inspectors. 
every time I say, hey, Zach, can you put up that slideshow? Uh, Zach is the main producer behind this show. He keeps this thing running and makes me hopefully look good and everybody else. So I want to thank Zach and Stream Inspectors. They are your leaders in live stream production. If you're sick of grainy Zoom webinars that nobody watches because they look terrible and everyone sounds terrible and it's boring to watch, definitely check out Stream Inspectors. They can make your next event just so much better and more interesting and engaging. And lastly, my company, Empower Global, which does diversity and inclusion training for global companies. We'll put the links to all of those in the chat. And then think about subscribing to us on Patreon. If you think these issues are important, if you care about these issues, if you want to hear these in-depth discussions, you can subscribe to us for $3 a month. $3. That's literally less than the price of a Starbucks. I think it might even be less than Dunkin' Donuts. So if you care about these kinds of issues, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That's it for tonight. This is Samantha Carlin signing off. Thank you so much for watching and we'll see you on our next episode of Samantha Politics. Good night.